We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And today we're going to get to a number of your mailbag questions. But first, some news out of Boston. Ime Udoka is suspended by the organization for a full season over a relationship with another team employee. Guys, I don't want to get too into details about a story that we don't know much about the actual allegations. So let's approach this just simply from the basketball perspective. Mike, this is not the best news for a team to get going into training camp. Yeah, certainly not. And I think that the first thing that stood out to me was the reporting on it, I thought was a little careless in like, there's one, it's one thing to break news and to try to be first when there's a trade, there's a trade or something like Mm -hmm. that. But it's another, when you don't have the complete picture and you're just putting out a morsel um, on Twitter. And then there are people that have real life consequences of that. For example, being uh, being a woman in that organization that had right. nothing to do with this. And then right. all of a sudden you're getting tweets. Oh, is it this person? Is it that person? People going to the Celtics website, seeing what females are on staff. So that part I thought was really in poor taste. And I felt that, that those are the people that I feel the worst for. Um, the people in that organization that had to deal with speculation. Um, as yeah. for whoever was involved... You know, that's where we also don't have the details to find out exactly what, you know, if it, it's at first it was consensual and then it wasn't. And I know that's not what we're here to. I shouldn't say then it wasn't. Then more complicating factors came out in Shams's piece last night about how, well, it started that way. And then but we're not sure what the dynamic was. So that part is just messy. As for how it affects kind of Udoka and the Celtics, to me, I don't know how you come back from that. It, with just a suspension uh, to me, that that's just something because of the power dynamic, because there are only a couple of people in the organization, right, that are – it would be the president, the GM, and then the head coach, the kind of the front-facing people to have a coworker um, that is in that sense subservient. Uh, that that to me is just pretty complicated and it, it to me it's hard to just go back and win the locker room back over. So um, that's the one thing. Then they had the Robert Williams injury and the Gallinari injury. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough media day uh, certainly going in there, but – yeah, Darius, that was the first thing that stood out to me. I just was uncomfortable with the whole way the thing was being covered. And and still, we don't even have all the details in, in some of the other people that are having to, to endure this there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
this whole thing is just messy and ugly in its own way. And there's a bunch of things that we'll probably never know. And even the things that we do know now are not clarified to the point that I actually feel informed. Right. Yeah. And, and so going back, actually, and this is where I feel like we as media consumers are also culpable in our own way because of our thirst for information and our sort of um, Pavlovian response to a breaking news sort of tweet. And, and even mm-hmm. the way that this tweet, the original tweet, the Woj tweet was set up as like breaking news, like that triggers this lizard part of our brain where we are then hungry for every morsel of information that we could get when in reality the nature of this report required much more of a human touch to to it all that i don't think the reporting has played out that way at all and and that's the reporting part of this that that trub- troubles me most because on its face, Woj's original tweet of this guy basically broke team rules and he's going to be suspended. That's actually what happened, right? And so, right. but the way it was presented as, yes. oh, here's... <laughs> Here's like this ominous picture of the head coach and here's a picture of me and my at symbol from Twitter (laughs) and then breaking news like sirens all over the like it just sort of like I said, it is set up in a way where we are then thirsty for a story in a way that we probably should not be thirsty for it at all. Right. Because of the human implications and all of the relationship within that organization, not the relationship with Udoka and like everything that happened. But like the need for more privacy around stuff, stuff like this, I think is super important. And unfortunately, like the way that this rolled out, it was like a trade and it wasn't a trade. Right. Right. And so that's sort of my take on the reporting aspect of this is is that we live in a culture of like first and like be first, be first, be first. And I've said this to almost every editor I've ever written for. I've said this to you guys behind the scenes. And it's just like an ethos of mine as someone who tangentially works in media. Right. Like I'm not a journalist. I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't go to Medill like Mike. I'm I'm not highly trained. Right. It's like I'm not one of those dudes. But I would rather be right and offer as much context as I possibly can and make sure that I'm being as informative as I can when I'm touching on a story rather than be first on something. Now, that's because I'm some lowly dude and I don't make my bones off of being the newsbreaker, I guess. But when you pedal in that world, it is, I think you set yourself up to navigate these situations in a certain way and it gets trickier. And so that's just my two cents on reporting in general and all of that. Pete, if you want to jump in here, please, please <laughs> Guys, do, because because there is a basketball element that I do think matters. 
No, I mean, the reporting element of it is you guys know and have been on the receiving end of a lot of my rants on how both sports, but also, you know, the world and and just media in general is, uh, you know, covers events. And we're at a place where it's far more entertainment than it is informative. And providing information is a public service, right? The whole point of reporting and of journalism is to tell stories to people as accurately as possible and relay information. But it's a very corruptible place as well. And it's something where there's no real enforcement mechanism on telling the truth. There are a lot of really good journalists who toil away and not particularly high paying jobs. And then the ones who know how to play the game and know how to grease the wheels and do it rather cynically tend to do pretty well for themselves as well. So that's something that that I, I'm glad you guys actually took this angle with it. We can talk about the basketball elements at a at a different time, but I'm actually really glad that it went in this direction and that just we have a general responsibility, I think, is people who cover the league tangentially or otherwise to to do so in good faith and to try to the best that we can provide the facts and not use it simply as a cynical like mechanism of gaining followers and likes and retweets and just hitting that dopamine every you know time and time again right d of that like oh breaking news breaking news oh i need more and more gossip and so i'm glad that we that, that we touched on this first yeah, I think it's tricky, too, because the idea of a head coach being suspended for up to a year, that's important. Un- unprecedented. And it's unprecedented, right? And so I definitely understand the the worthiness of that as news. The tricky part is, is why? And if you're not going to reveal why, then how are you going to contextualize it further? And there was a lot of nuance that I feel like that fell short for me in this specific case. And and that's just a tricky thing. And I'm not here to like try to dunk on Woj or like to try to dunk on on Shams who who whose follow-ups did provide more context but did not provide enough context to where it seemed like it was almost contradicted in the report that came out the next day by him as well. And so there's a lot of stuff here that is just like, it's, it's messy. The reporting was not as clean as I would have liked as a consumer of media and particularly a consumer of basketball media and um, someone who feels like this needs to be Everyone needs to be held to as high a standard as possible. And I bet if you gave both these guys the truth serum, they might tell you that they wished it could have that it would have been cleaner themselves. Right. But it's just like this is the nature of the world, Mike, where it is like, let's get the news yeah. out and then we'll deal with it later. And that's a tough that's a tough world to live in when it comes to this specific type of story where all like the devil really is in the details and the details really do matter and you really do need to tread carefully because like our thirst for that is going to lead to a bunch of part i will not curse here but pardon my language like effing bozos and clowns that then jump online and are like yeah let's publish pictures and names and 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 let's speculate on who what's going on and who these people are and like let's and then 
let's cape up for everyone in the organization or if like whatever everyone starts to take their stance and it's just an ugly ugly thing and i just wish we were all better all of us i say that as like the royal we like we need to be better about stuff like this and this was a case where i just wish that we were and we weren't and i think everyone sort of fell short in their own way in this yeah. So, I, you know, I just saw something I read. A, I only read about two paragraphs of it, but Brad Stevens talking about how just on how badly he feels for the women in the organization and echoing that. And there's only so much they can say. And if they the issue is right, well, if they had just named the person that it was, it ends the speculation. But that's a privacy issue as well. And then depending on on, again, the way that it was initiated and whatever the relationship was, that's the stuff that we don't know. So uh, we we won't speculate on it any further, certainly. I'm now just thinking of uh, to to quickly try to turn it to basketball is just Boston, I thought, came out of the finals as as a clear finals, not necessarily favorite, but but right up there uh, in Vegas, mm-hmm. had, I think, had them as favorites as recently as a week ago. But then not only do you have the, the Gallinari injury, even if he wasn't going to play a ton in crunch time or that kind of thing. And much more significantly to me is the Robert Williams injury and how different they were. And how when he wasn't on the floor, they just really they weren't able to provide the proper deterrent to Golden State. And those are the times where Golden State really had their way with them. And and like I, I think adding Udoka into this and just all of the the drama and, and all of that, I, I do think is enough to knock them down a peg or two. Right. Like these these kinds of things when it's a, when it's already a tight race and it's not some overwhelming talent difference, Pete, you know, to me, that does change where I would rank them in the East going into this season, uh, just the, the cumulative effect of those last really three, four weeks of bad news for them. Udoka proved himself to be a really good head coach. So like put all this stuff aside, right? He was, yeah, he, he had the buy-in of all those guys. Yeah. Especially Taylor yeah. Brown. And yeah. Yeah. He showed to be like a leader for them in, in a way that, that mattered. And one of the things that he did is like, he outcoached Steve Nash, like in the first round. Now, how high of a bar that it is or whatever. It's just like he he did an excellent job as a head coach in terms of getting his team to the point where they were in the NBA finals and up at one point in the series. Uh two one, right? And so I th- I think losing your head coach and losing him for these specific reasons, but losing him at all, it's it's that's enough to me as a believer in how much coaching actually does matter in this league that it's rough for the Celtics. Like, I don't know another way to frame it from a basketball standpoint. It it leaves them in an odd position, too, uh, from a so the the guy who's taken over for him, I think his name's Mazzella. Um, the, the guy who's taken over for him, does he run Udoka's system? Probably right. the The closest thing that comes to this is remember when Steve Kerr was out a couple years ago with the back issue, and Luke yeah. Walton filled in for him. And then that's something that is so established that I think that you kind of keep the trains running, and that's pretty much what the goal is. And they're probably going to try to replicate that in Boston as well. But trying to run someone else's system with someone else's vision is very different than supporting it. So um, it, they, they certainly have some challenges ahead. And I, I talk a lot about the idea of building a wave going into a season and, and throughout a season. And it always doesn't always work that way, right? Like last year, they were an under 500 team in January and it, it snapped into place and they turned things around. But it's something that the more accumulation of things like this early on, the tougher that it can be. So uh, let's take a quick 
quick break and shift gears. When we come back, we're going to answer some of your mailbag questions. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, guys, some some Lakers stuff. This question comes from Riley Lewis. In a Russ-centric unit, let's say a bench group, who do you think is the better option at the five offensively, Jones or Bryant? I like Jones's motor and athleticism as a roller, but there's also a good argument that Russ operates with better with a pick-and-pop big to create more driving lanes. Mike, what say you on the Jones versus Bryant alongside Russ? Okay, so the Russ qualifier, right, is important because that, that certainly impacts – what that situation is going to be. I still though would just defer to how Bryant and, uh, and Jones look individually first, because if there's a big gap in how they look mm-hmm. in preseason, then, you know, I don't care who's the slightly better fit with the way that Russ plays, but like the, the clear answer, if, if we're assuming that Jones and Bryant are pretty close, then the clear answer would be Bryant because you, you need that spacing. You need some of that shooting um, to extend out to the perimeter. I think, uh, now that doesn't, you know, Russ obviously could also have the lob threat in Jones. So there, there's a part of that. But for me, just with the way defenses would play, if Russ were going to start and if Jones were going to start, that it would be so packed in the paint already um, that I would probably defer to the shooting in that sense. But so, yeah, that that would be my uh, my overarching thought. But I'm still kind of more thinking about who, which guy looks better than who fits with Russ. My preference would actually be Jones, provided that the other three guys can shoot. It's more about like what can the five man group uh, do? And, and Riley said in the question, like let's say a bench unit. So we're not talking about a LeBron and AD group. We're pro- talking an either or. I'm, I'm guessing that Darvin is going to uh, have one of them out there at all times. And so either or with a, a bench unit, it. It's you know if it's LeBron out there, it's probably Jones, and also in part because they can, but. Yeah, but then that's the case. If it's LeBron and Jones, like just have them run middle ball screens, right, and have shooting around uh, around them. But if yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. And so on this team, D though, like I'm talking about that from a theoretical standpoint. If the other three guys can shoot, we don't really have a ton of shooting. And so if it's other guys that it, it's going to be that easy decision, like Mike was talking about, of packing the paint, and because I'm not going to close out to Juan Toscano Anderson, right? I, I'm totally going to tag on Damian Jones on a roll instead of that it's it's very much dependent on the surrounding talent but in a vacuum i'd probably prefer jones but also mike's point about like who looks better now i think one of the things that's going to come into play is thomas bryant's coming off of an an injury right he played a little bit last year but when he returned from a, a pretty major knee injury and so 
where he's at in that development and and in like I think that we've been kind of assuming, and I've been certainly guilty of this, that he's going to get back to the year two or year three Thomas Bryant that was really good with Washington, right? And because he's only 25, 26 years old, it's not something where he there's some erosion of talent because he's gotten older or anything, but sometimes there's an erosion due to injury. So I think that what we've been expecting out of Thomas Bryant and what he may be might be two different things. So I'm actually leaning towards Jones as well. So I look at this as who has more guaranteed gravity because any sort of rust pick and roll, you're looking at how much gravity does the screener have in order to allow rust to get downhill more. And I think Jones is going to have more gravity as a lob threat than Bryant is going to have gravity as a three-point shooter. And Bryant's going to have to shoot a high volume of threes, A, and he's going to have to make them. And then even then, as a pick and pop big, there are there are ways to scheme where you're actually rotating from the perimeter to him rather than having his own man recover out. And so I look at this as if Jones is getting downhill and rolling hard, he's going to need to be tagged. Yep. Especially if Russ is turning the corner and looking to get downhill, which he is. If there's one thing we know about Russ, he is going to put his head down, even if it's reckless, even if it's not necessarily the right play. He oh, will he's going to get into the paint. Yeah, yeah he's he going to try to get downhill, and he's going to try to draw the, the next defender. That's just how he plays. So I'm looking at this from a gravity standpoint, and I guess initially my answer would be, until proven otherwise, Jones. Because I think Jones is going to have more roll gravity than Bryant is going to have pop gravity, which I think will help Russ more. But that's speculation. But that's sort of where I'm at at this point. All right. Our next question comes from Matt. This is a good question. This is something I think is more important than the starting lineup. Matt asks, what do you see as the Lakers' best closing lineup? Closing, I think it is AD at the five. And and then obviously LeBron. I need Patrick Beverly. I need Austin Reeves and well, if I can, if he's healthy and I, and I feel like I can go small enough, then maybe I try to get away with Kendrick Nunn, but this is the point where I'd rather have some more size, like one of those Mm -hmm. mid-size guys that just isn't really on the roster, you know? Right. So like so, if that's that's is where a Coos or a Marquise Morris or somebody that can slide between LeBron and AD when needed, and that's the spot that I don't have. I still don't think that I want the other big out there though, and so then it, it becomes a who's playing best essentially between his Juan mm-hmm. Toscano Anderson hit a couple threes that game. You know, is, is Troy Brown particularly on it defensively? Is um, is Kendrick Nunn taking advantage of a matchup? So that's that part is unclear, and I guess that's why. I'll go if the other team I know is also small, then I'd probably go with with Kendrick Nunn. Um, And and if not, then, you know, whichever one of those forwards is is playing well enough, I I would throw in. So for me, I think the answer is between Dennis and Damian Jones. Yeah, I should have mentioned Dennis, too. Yeah. Thank you for doing that, Darius. So so do you have the other two? Do you have Pat Bev and Austin in the closing lineup? I have Austin for sure. And I mean, yeah, I would probably lean towards Beverly. So my th- so three guys I want to see close as much as possible are LeBron, AD, and Austin. 
I think that Austin is the player who's proven to play best off of those guys. We will see if Dennis is still there with that. Um, and we'll see how none plays off of those guys as well. I ha- sort of have it baked in that Beverly will be fine. And I think his defense will be important in late game situations regardless. And so I, he'd probably be there like 80% of the time. And this is trusting Darius that Beverly's not going to, you know, look off LeBron and pull up for three too often, which can oh, it's happen, happen with him, Mike. Which it's going to happen, happen with him. Mike. And those are times <laughs> when, you know, that that's where he isn't always in it. But, but yeah, presuming that he's behaving. Yeah. And, and look, like, I still haven't gone on my long, like, Beverly rant in terms of, like, the things I don't like about his game. Like, antics aside, the things I don't like about his game. But that's sort of where I'd be. I wouldn't, like... If Beverly is going to defend a lot of like twos and threes, and if in late game situations, LeBron and AD can guard the best wing and the best big, then that gives you a lot of versatility and ability to play smaller dudes with them, even if it is Dennis, Beverly, and Austin, I think, because you have enough with those guys as well from a perimeter defensive ability standpoint to say we got it we could do enough with this group and so i would probably lean in that direction if i was going small and i would swap out either dennis or patrick beverly probably for jones as a big guy at this point if the lakers were going to close with a bigger group that's one of the things like Mike was saying earlier that you'd love to have another bigger forward out there as uh, next to LeBron and AD, but that guy just simply isn't on the roster. And in lieu of that, when you do need to go a little bit bigger, I do think that there are going to be more games where it is Jones or TB that's closing and AD is closing at the four, which has not been the case in the past, just as an absence of that you know, backup three, four type of guy that can slide into that spot with in a closing lineup. I think that that's just going to happen a little bit more often with my closing five. The three guys that have that are written in pen are LeBron, AD and Pat Bev. Austin is certainly a candidate for one of the the closing spots, but he's one of a, a group of him, none, Russ and Dennis, most likely that would be filling those two spots. So it's four guys for those final two spots. And so there are going to be some nights where I think uh, Dennis, Pat, Bev, and, and Russ are the way to go. Other nights where it's going to be none, Austin, and Pat, Bev. But Pat, Bev was the one guy amongst the role players that I kind of have written in pen for that position. And frankly, even when the Lakers won the title, LeBron and AD were the only 100% for sure guys that were closing. Yes. Danny Green was was many, many times more often than not. Uh, but even early in the season, like it wasn't KCP yet. Um, mm-hmm. Alex Caruso... It, ended up emerging some, you know, sometimes it could have been Kuz, sometimes it's Marquise Moore. So you don't, when you've got guys Rondo. that are that good. Rondo closed a bunch of games too, where it was just like, oh my God, Rondo, like, right. What are you doing? <laughs> right? that was, guys, that was very atypical in the NBA. Like usually you have at least four guys that are almost always going to be out there to close games. Like, mm-hmm. like look at what, you know, Phoenix's roster or, you know, even Golden State or Boston. Like it's usually going to be the same guys. And I would typically like to see that, but that that team just they had such a and this is why I bring it up for this context, because if you have other guys that will do whatever the role is needed around the two that everybody agrees on or the guys, uh-huh. you can do it that way, too. And so this is going to be a, a fluid question. It's a good question. But the reason that we all went on and mentioned, you know, eight different guys is because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really not 
it's not clear, nor is it going to be clear. There's not, I don't think Darvin's just going to be like, this is the closing group, right, for every game. Exactly. And that's something, like you said, is, is super unusual. Most other teams, you know who their closing five is going to be. Our friend of the pod, Mike Garcia, in our conversations, that's something he's really big on is that you, you know, you get yourself a closing lineup and you build your team around that and then you build backwards off of that. And so going to be very curious to see what Darvin ends up doing. All right, guys, we got a got a fun one here from Andres Garcia asks. Uh, probably too late for this one. It is not, but I'll try anyway. I know Darius and Pete also grew up on Showtime. How did it make you guys feel seeing those Maui videos? My inner child was so happy seeing my heroes all back together and having fun. Mike, you've had a, a little bit more insight on what's going on in, in Maui. Talk to us. Well, Michael Thompson had been texting us on the group thread, right? With with various and consistent updates. Yes, Riggs. I'm going to go ahead and skip the, the ad for you to get Disney sing-along back on. There you go. I figured I'd just let you in on what was going on while I was talking there. That was going to be impossible. <laughs> so Michael's sending us these videos. And the first several are when everybody got in on the first night. And basically, they all got up to introduce themselves and their family. And, of course, everyone knew who they were. But, hey, uh, Bob McAdoo, come on up. You know, And, well, this is who I brought. This is what's been going on. Uh, take some McAdoo took a shot at Magic, which was hilarious. And Magic goes into his deep <laughs> belly laugh. And so I'm just getting these videos in one by one. And then forwarding them onto YouTube, knowing that you're the two people uh, in my phone that are going to probably appreciate this more than anybody. And oh, yeah. so that so that's the background of it. I mean, I'm I'm really looking forward to backstage. Lakers is going to do two behind. Well, I think I should say for sure, but I assume they'll do at least like two full shows right uh, behind the scenes. They had multiple cameras there, and those will be great. So make sure to check out Spectrum uh, when those things come out. But yeah, I mean, you guys, like like I said, I was watching them and enjoying them, but I felt like I was more just doing it to to hit your childhood. Um, so, you know, hopefully that that was fun for you guys. That was you were very successful in that. And thank you for passing those videos on, man. There, there are some times where I think that I uh, I I died in the hospital a couple of years ago and I'm living this like Laker fan heaven dream, like, you know, working for the team and then getting these videos sent by Mike, you know, from behind the scenes. And it was it was so cool. The the videos that you sent, um, just kind of seeing them in their own element and there were a couple that stood out, uh, a couple, especially revolving around Pat Riley, uh, one where he was talking crap to Michael about how Clay makes more money than him in one year than Michael ever made in his whole career. Just how guys like kind of talk crap to each other, right? And just, and Riley's still just such a presence. And then another one of him addressing the team that really hit me, that he was talking about how like you don't realize, like he's like, we didn't realize how great we were at the time like you don't realize you're part of something special when you're in the moment of it it takes that time d that kind of letting it process and settle and reflecting back on it that especially with like cream turning 75 and just everyone's getting older that's another thing that stands out it's like these guys are all old men i grew up with them and they're all old guys you know uh and and so it certainly makes me feel older that's one of those things that seeing someone else age you know has a way of doing that but I, that really stood out to me, D, is Riley's comments to the team just about like reflecting back on that era and how when you're in it doing the work, you don't really have the proper appreciation for it. But then when you look back on it, you you do. Yeah, I think the thing that has stood out to me the most is, A, how many of them were able to come 
and just the sheer like oh like there's 20 25 players yeah there, right? yeah and and it sort of shows the extent of their run like how long they were a great team and yeah. the guys who were there at the beginning but then left like norm nixon or were there towards the end and but not at the beginning like even a michael thompson right and how all of these guys share that brotherhood and that connectivity based off of the idea that there were those core guys that traveled together over the course of almost the entire time. Like Magic Kareem and Cooper were there the entire time, right? And um, and then Worthy was there from from eighty two on, and then even Rambus was there for for a for an extended period of time too. And just that idea of having those guys be the anchors and. Mike, I know that you've done this before. Like, I think you 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 told us before about how you've like taken trips and and met up with your old college buddies. And like, these are guys who you've known for 10, 15, 20 years. And it's like that idea of those lasting friendships. And it just shows you that like the brotherhood that exists with these guys and everything that they accomplished together and Riley being right there with them and all of their, all of their affinity for Riley as well as like the guy who remember like Riley took over that team when he was relatively young players did not play as long as they play. Now there weren't 40 year old guys littered across the league or guys who played 17, 18, 19, 20 seasons the way that they do now. And so Riley had been retired, but he, he was young still right like he was so when he took over the team and he started to coach it's just like his maturity level and him growing into the role of being pat riley the don the guy that we see now but he's he's like a peer to so many of them in in terms of age right like he's not mm-hmm. so much older than kareem right right so it's like like that idea too of now the way that when you grow up, you sort of look at your parents and like they'll always be your parents and they'll always be that authority figure to you in in a certain way. But as you age, you're like, oh, I'm going to talk to you like an adult because I'm an adult and you raised me to be this adult. And now we yeah. relate on all of these different levels. And so it was all of that sort of background stuff that I appreciated about as well is like, look at these men who accomplished so much together in their yeah. youth, but now 20, 30, 40 years later, it's just like, they're still like, they could just recall it, like riding a bike and those memories just flood back. And and you could see the genuine love and appreciation and respect that they all had for, for each other. And, and, and so that was really great. And the other thing, time is such a precious commodity. And I think it's evolved a little bit too with the modern NBA team and how everybody has their cell phone. And that's kind of the thing that you go check at halftime and after the game and on the bus, everyone's listening to headphones. And you know, these guys... They just they were just around each other all day. They practiced every day. They sat on the buses together. They had no I mean, sure, Kareem would be reading a newspaper, you know, but that would be it. And they just talked and talked trash to each other. And they spent a massive uh, percentage of their 20s and early 30s together. uh, These guys and sure, a guy comes in, but then he's connected to one player on a different team. And it's just the relationships that they had. Are, make it for such such kind of quick developing um, fondness. And, and so that's when Darius mentioned, so yeah, I, if I go to see my college friends, well, the thing is, 
we when we were there for those four years, the time that we spent together was so great that we can go a couple of years without talking much or seeing each other and you fall right back in. And I think some people that have big families have this kind of thing where everybody's sort of around the house always growing up. And then you go back into town. You might not have seen the crew for a while and you drop into that. And, and that's part of, I think, what that Showtime Lakers crew had. And that's part of what makes special relationships. Is beautiful. And I can't wait to see what backstage ends up doing with it. All right, everyone have a great weekend. When we talk to you again, it will be after media day. So it won't be a Monday morning pod. We'll try to record either Monday night or Tuesday morning. But until then, you've been listening to the Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tips to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Here on the line. Three seconds left. That next to the winner. It's on the way. Good. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. With his eighth block shot, the NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans okay, sticking so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two, one, miss it! Unbelievable. Victory. It's over. Shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yeah. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Bad insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic. Trying to disrupt Rondo, he puts it in. Here's Davis, 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.